The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn in your Bible now to Ephesians chapter 5. We are continuing in a series in the book of Ephesians and a mini-series on marriage. This will be my last message on the topic. And preaching next week, I plan to move on into chapter 6 as we address the topic of parenting. I believe Pastor Light may come back and address a couple messages on marriage Uh, later on in May. It just worked out that way in the schedule. Uh, But we pick up again in Ephesians chapter 5. As I was reflecting upon this this message, I was thinking about the the classic traditional wedding vows uh, that we we use in this church. These vows uh, were first published, we believe, in the book, the English Reformation Book of Common Prayer, Uh, from over 400 years ago. If you hear those vows, you you hear the imploring the groom and the bride to promise in covenant before God and these gathered witnesses to be loving and faithful in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health as long as as we both shall live. Marriage is a long-term commitment. And we have the young couple to, we have them make a vow to hold them to their pledge. Because as tests and trials and difficulties come, couples are tempted to question that commitment to be tempted to stray away from that promise. Well, as we continue in this mini-series, we seek to renew our vision and strengthen our resolve to remain faithful in marriage till death do us part. I want to read the whole passage beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ 
does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's holy inspired word. Father God, once again we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. My wife Stacy and I were wed on Valentine's Day in Stratford, Wisconsin, her hometown, and it was a beautiful scene with a white blanket of snow covering the landscape. And two nights before our wedding, I was rudely introduced to what is known as black ice. It was evening, and my father and I were leaving the hotel to drive to the airport to pick up one of my groomsmen. Well, as I walked across the blacktop at dusk, I slipped and severely twisted my ankle. I can still remember the sharp shooting pain going up my leg, making me quite reluctant to walk and put any pressure on it. And as we sent my father off to the airport, my mom took me to the ER for an x-ray just to make sure it wasn't fractured. And the results were negative, and yet the doctor confirmed it was a very severe sprain. Well, later that evening when I saw Stacy, I could tell by the look in her eyes that the, and with a message that was loud and clear, you will not be using crutches in our wedding ceremony. So I was outfitted with a brace and crutches, and I was laid up with ice all that Friday, trying to keep pressure off the ankle as long as possible before the wedding ceremony. Needless to say, the walk down the aisle was slow and deliberate, and the euphoric joy, thankfully, Uh, moved me to bravely dance with my bride at the reception, even if it was a bit cautious. Sometimes you just have to get in the game and play hurt anyway. Well, then on our honeymoon in Cancun, Mexico, our walks on the beach were more like hobbles. Let's stick to the pool, hon. And during a day trip to Chichen Itza, I sadly had to remain grounded as I watched my my wife brave her way up the uh, glorious Mayan pyramid. Well, by the time, several days later, that we returned home to Houston, my ankle was on the mend. But now we had some new problems brewing. That first Monday, my wife drove me to my place of employment, which was about 40 minutes away across town. And all through the day, I was feeling worse and worse and felt a fever coming on, and I was upset, had an upset stomach. And when Stacy came to pick me up that evening, she handed me the car keys, and I 
thought, oh, what a, what a submissive wife. She's letting me take the wheels of our car. Well, turns out she was not feeling well either. As we were driving home, we just barely made it home before we both collapsed. We had both picked up a stomach bug that my sister had been carrying on our wedding day. At least it waited till after the honeymoon to strike. So there we were laid up with the stomach flu. And uh, to make matters worse, we were suffering a double whammy of a little Montezuma's revenge of having consumed some fruit or beverage while in Mexico that was not settling well with our American stomachs. We were out for days. I remember my dad coming over, bringing saltines and Sprite and Pepto-Bismol, and I watched my poor wife as I recovered a little sooner than she did. She just laid there and did nothing, hardly moving for a good day or two. Welcome to marriage. (laughs) With all of its uh, glory, for better or for worse. Even the most proud, the strongest and most beautiful of couples enter into marriage only to be humbled, to be hobbling into marriage with baggage, with hidden weaknesses, with flaws and liabilities. Every couple that walks aisle and makes vows into marriage comes in with weaknesses, with vulnerabilities. And for the newly married who find themselves hobbling along in their newlywed season, for many they find the challenge overwhelming. There are some who honestly ask, what did I get myself into? Where do we go from here? We made a move from Texas to St. Louis to attend Covenant Seminary. And at the time, I was working in, out of Austin, where we were living in a rental apartment. We had all of, our, all of our belongings in storage back in Houston. And the time of our move was during the first week of July in Houston, which is about 98 degrees and something like 150% humidity. At least it felt like it. And I rented a 20-foot U-Haul truck to pack up all of our things and make our way, our drive up to St. Louis. Well, once that truck was about 75% full, I realized a problem. The truck would not be big enough for all of our belongings. And I thought, oh, no problem. We'll just rent a trailer to hitch onto the back of the truck. Well, when that came in at the tune of $350 my frugal self decided to upgrade to a 24-foot for only 40 more dollars. So there we were having to unpack the truck and repack a new truck. I thought my father was going to have a heart attack or suffer heat stroke. I underestimated and had to make adjustments for this move. Many young couples underestimate what it takes in marriage. What is needed in marriage? What does it take for marriage to last and to prosper for the long haul? What I'd like to explore with you tonight is 
the, the, the broader text here of what Paul is uh, applying to the husband, but I think it applies both to the husband and the wife as we talk about what does faithfulness look like in marriage, and what does it mean, what does it look like to finish well? As I pointed out to you last time, it's very obvious that, that Paul is not talking about romance when he refers to love. He, he's not talking about self-fulfillment and self-actualization, the prominent themes of our own day. He's using language about bathing, cleansing, implying dirt and filth. And he first points us to the call of Christ, that we should be sanctified through marriage. In his exhortation of husbands to love their wives in the likeness of Christ, he explains to us that Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christ's bride needed a bath. And the language here, I believe, is referencing the kind of Old Testament ceremonial cleansing we find throughout the Old Testament. We remember how Israel had been redeemed out of bondage, slavery, and idolatry in Egypt. And there was a community circumcision. And there were rites of purification and cleansing in the sacrificial system. When the priests were anointed to lead and represent the people before God, they had to go through rites of purification. And there were various various rites and rituals of sprinkling with water, with blood. There was anointing with oil. And all of these rituals were representing the cleansing and purification of God and accepting sinners as they brought worship, sacrifices of worship before him. Paul is using that language to remind us that the whole, in the holy institution of marriage, we come unclean. We come impure. Nobody ever marries a pure person. Everyone marries a sinner. Everybody enters into marriage as a sinner. As Tim Keller points out in his sermon series on this text in his book, you always marry the wrong person. You and I were the wrong person for Christ to marry. And yet he pursued us and lavished his grace upon us and he sets before us an example and empowers us to pursue a spouse in his likeness. And that's an important truth to gather because In my experience, when people get married, there oftentimes is that onset of some disillusionment. Sometimes a young couple will get married and all the the ideals of the other person's character and abilities and skills, it it diminishes a bit because you're you're closer and and you see one another's flaws. And the real challenge is what will you do with that? Will you resent that, reject that, or will it lead you to the cross in humility 
not only as you show grace and mercy to your spouse, but humbly acknowledge your own flaws and shortcomings. Back at Christmas, my grandparents bought uh, the, the grandparents brought our, bought our children a, a basketball set, a backboard and rim and the pole, the kind you install in the ground. And, and I, I specifically requested this kind because in our neighborhood, it seems like every fourth house has a basketball goal. And, and most of them are set up on those, those, those plastic platforms that can be moved around the backyard or on the driveway. And as I look around my neighborhood, almost every single one of them have cinder blocks or bags of sand and concrete to weight it down because they're always toppling over. And I have five boys in my house. And I would not trust a wobbly, unsecure basketball set on our property. So I had them order us one that I had to install and and anchor into the ground with concrete. So after this long winter, it was only recently that I had the chance to go out and install this basketball set. And I picked a spot uh, near the driveway, and the instructions called me to to dig a two-foot hole, two foot deep and 18 inches wide in diameter. doesn't sound like much. But as soon as you start digging near the driveway, right below the surface of that beautiful green grass are rocks. Lots of rocks. And, and, I, and as I was digging those rocks and dumping them into the trash can, I was thinking, I, I kept fooling myself into believing, you know, if I just dig a little further, I won't have to encounter any more rocks. It'll just be pure, easy dirt. But no, I'm digging rocks and digging rocks and getting quite the workout in the process. Unbeknownst to me, I'm filling up my trash can, which will now be very difficult to dispose of later on. And in fact, the the garbage man refused to take it, so I had to divvy that up among various buckets and, and dump properly later on. When we enter into marriage, we begin to see below the surface. And below the surface, there are rocks. There are things that need to be removed. The rock of pride. The rock of self-righteousness. The rock of short temper. The rock of impatience. The the rock of judgmental spirit. The the rock of, of insecurity, of fear of man, of lying. And as a couple comes together in the close quarters of marriage, they they see things about each other that they might not have noticed before. Even during good premarital counseling and dating and courtship, there are things that are revealed. And and you can be in marriage where you're, you're, you're digging, you're helping each other dig up those rocks. And you keep digging. And you keep finding more rocks. And you think, well, well when will the rocks end? And you realize that you are in for the long haul. That Christ has called you to be wed to a fellow sinner who has brokenness, who has weaknesses, who has flaws. And your calling as a husband or a wife are to help that person, even as he or she is called to help you remove some of the rocks out of your head. out of your heart. 
But verse 27 in our passage gives us encouragement. Because the, the work of removing those rocks can feel overwhelming, can feel exhausting, and you ask yourself, is it worth it? But Paul offers us this vision in verse 27, when he says that all of the cleansing and sanctifying work of Christ was for this purpose, that he might present the church without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. Christ is the husband that does not give up on us. Christ is a husband who has the perfect vision and commitment to purify us, who remains faithful and committed to the end. On a couple's wedding day, the man is in his prime and at his strongest. The woman is in her glory and in in all of her beauty. And as we all know, after the wedding day, it begins to go downhill. We age. The man loses his strength. A woman's beauty fades. But notice what Christ is doing in this marriage. Christ is restoring them. Christ is making the man stronger. And Christ is making the woman more beautiful. In Christ, in the gospel, the curse is reversed. And every married couple has an opportunity to be a part of that great reversal as we learn to abide with Christ, as we cooperate with Him, as we labor in this hard work of sanctifying one another. A man grows stronger as he learns to die to self, to serve his wife. To put her own put her interest above his own, to understand her, to listen to her, and a wife is made more beautiful by that quiet and submissive spirit that Peter commends to women in First Peter chapter three, by growing in boldness, graciousness, compassion, forgiveness, and long suffering with her husband. Like you, I recently had to sharpen my lawnmower blade to get it ready for the spring mowing season. And my goal is to make my lawn beautiful. And so I have to sharpen the blade. If your goal is to make your marriage more beautiful, what are you doing to sharpen your marriage? What are you doing to improve your communication? your intimacy, your understanding of one another, your resolution to resolve conflict peacefully and patiently. Let me commend to you books and resources, conferences, perhaps counseling. But in the confines of community, I encourage you to commit to making marriage beautiful a fit representative of the gospel, as Paul reveals in this very passage. And he goes on in verse 28 and 29, on from the call to sanctification to the call to sacrifice, when he, ref- when he exhorts husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. And he begins to illustrate how a man will feed and take care of his own body, that he is called to feed and care for his wife. 
a woman will look in the mirror and oftentimes see her flaws. In contrast, a man looks in the mirror and says, oh, I still, I still got it. He still sees that 18-year-old hunk of man meat. But the mirror of God's word reveals our flaws. And as we encounter one another's flaws, we are called to help correct them. We are called to overlook them. We are called to rejoice in in the beauty and the glory of the other. We have one husband in our church who refers to his wife's wrinkles as laugh lines. Speaking of the joy and the beauty of their relationship beyond what in beauty is fading away. I, for one, have been inspired by the example of several men in our congregation who have literally served their wives by feeding and caring for them as their bodies ail in poor health. I think of my good friend, Ron Waltman, who for years took care of his wife, Judy, before his homegoing to be with the Lord. I can name other widowers in our congregation. Harlan Wolf, Adam LaRose, who faithfully, daily, visited their wives who were in special care in retirement communities to feed them, to love them, to care for them, to spend time with them. I can mention our recent missions conference speaker, Jerry Gutierrez, who laid his dear wife, Ruthie, to rest after a many years brutal battle with bone cancer. You know, I'm sure that in each case, None of these men had any idea what would lay in store for them 40, 50, 60 years ago when they were married. But when we enter into the marital covenant, we're called to faithfulness. We're called to perseverance. We're called to laying down our lives, to serving the other. And we live in a fallen world of decay, an illness of death and many disappointing Thanks. Nevertheless, we are called to faithfulness to the end in the very likeness of Christ. So how do we finish well in marriage? You know, most of us want to finish well financially. Many of us, I assume, have long-term investments, either a home or retirement account of some kind. And we hope that there's enough left as we grow into old age. We want our marriages to last. In fact, we want them to grow exponentially. And just as you're encouraged to invest early in retirement account, we encourage couples, invest early when you're young, making the investments that last a lifetime. I saw a secular study last year that pointed out the the number one quality noted in successful marriages. The number one characteristics identified by good, healthy marriages. Empathy. Empathy is the number one quality that came out of this secular study. That ability to enter into another person's world. 
to understand them, to identify with them. Inspired by the recent Lincoln movie, to read the biography on which it's based, Team of Rivals. It's a chronicle of Abraham Lincoln's political genius, his leadership, the way he called together a cabinet of rivals, of men who wanted to be president. And in that tension and strife of that presidential administration, out came some of the best leadership that our country has ever seen from the White House. And I'm struck over and over in this biography of Lincoln how that the author makes very clear the traits that made Lincoln so well-loved by the masses, by friends, family, and even his political enemies. And there was at least three things. His great storytelling ability. Secondly, his sense of humor. And thirdly, his profound empathy. Lincoln was a master storyteller. He was a legend at joke-telling and bringing forth laughter. But what endeared people to him the most was his ability to enter into people's worlds, to empathize with those who were hurting and suffering, especially during the horrors and trials of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was not a proud man. He was not easily offended. He did not take things personally even when he was brutally attacked by his enemies. But he remained fixated on a a common goal that helped turn his adversaries into his closest allies. Many historians have made the obvious comparison, how Abraham Lincoln provides a resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ, the master storyteller, the one who was called friend of sinners, a man who enjoyed a good party and laughter. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the one who demonstrates empathy, empathy towards the hurting, towards the lost, the one who entered into the worlds of the sick, the dying, the demon-possessed, those who were afflicted with great disabilities. Lincoln was indeed a great example. He died in many ways for a cause, a a sacrifice to freedom and unity for our country. But his sacrifice pales in comparison to the laying down of the life of Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection secured our end to the slavery to sin and our fear of death. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who lives to intercede for us, who helps us to die to self, to put off those sinful attitudes of self-righteousness, of prickliness, and hard-heartedness. Friends, the number one thing you can offer to your spouse is empathy. It's quite the opposite of what happens during divorce. When two sad people become self-centered, demonize one another, determined to get what they want, whether it's material things or custody of the children, not thinking of the other. In contrast, empathy is a call to consider the needs of others. 
Paul summarizes it well in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And we learn from the Gospels that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Your spouse is a fellow sinner. Afflicted by the curse, he or she has weaknesses, flaws, and liabilities just like you. Even worse, your spouse has to deal with you. A great liability in many ways. I believe the gospel would call us to pity her. To have compassion upon him. I've grown convinced that what mature marriages look like. Maturity in marriage is where each spouse is focused not on the flaws of the other but is more deeply concerned with his or her own sins. Are you humbled by your own sin more than you are irritated by your spouse and all of his or her flaws? Are you reminded daily of how much you need Jesus, even as you see your spouse's own need for a gracious Savior? You see, the gospel gives us resources for empathy. Because the gospel makes us aware of our own sin. It makes us grateful for God's grace. It enables us to offer compassion and forgiveness to those who sin against us, especially the sins of our own dear spouses. In the gospel, when your identity is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus and not wrapped up in what your spouse thinks of you and not wrapped up in just pleasing him or her, but pleasing the Lord Jesus. It enables you to die to the idolatries that can fall into marriage. And as we are more and more consumed with Christ, we become less prickly, less ornery, more tender, more loving, more joyful, more sympathetic, more playful in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Back in February to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary, I took my wife on an overnight baby moon at a bed and breakfast about an hour north of here. And during breakfast uh, the next day, we learned that on this bed and breakfast, which was located on a a farm, that they had sheep and they had a, a flock of newborn lambs. So after breakfast, we decided to take a hike up the hill and uh, arrived at this, this covered t- open tent area, and there were several pens of sheep. And sure enough, in the large pen, there were several little lambs kind of skipping around several days, maybe a week or so old. And then over here was this little pen with two newborn lambs had just been born that morning. And as we were admiring and enjoying the lambs, I, I hear behind me this, bah! and I turn around and look, and there's a large sheep staring at me. Bah! And so I stared back, and I said, bah! to you. 
And my wife laughed as I went bat to bat with this grumpy old sheep, seeing who would get the last bat. Sadly, I fear sometimes couples, as they age, as they endure trials and difficulties, become like two grumpy old sheep, just bickering and picking at each other, just batting at each other. And somehow along the way, they have neglected to nurture and cultivate the, the tenderness that the gospel should bring to every marital relationship. You know, I'll take my wife out to dinner and enjoy my time with her, and I'll see other couples sitting there not really talking to each other, not really engaged with one another. And it was something that Stacy and I resolved early in our marriage. We were determined not to let our marriage degenerate to become something like those grumpy old sheep. See, I'm convinced that, that a, a marriage has to be at least three things. That when a couple gets married, they are friends. And they are lovers. And they are partners. They meet and they're friends and they become lovers and they marry as they enter into marriage, they become partners sharing financial resources and a home, and if the Lord blesses them with children. And the challenge to any marriage is preserving all three. To not allow the intimacy. To not allow the friendship to wither and rot. And before long, this couple is, are nothing better than roommates. Managing the estate with one another. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to nurture and develop your marriage. To cultivate and restore your friendship. Your romance. Go out on dates. Do getaways. Talk with one another on a daily basis. Share with each other prioritize each other, write notes to one another, give gifts, surprise one another. Just as in retirement planning, for the people who didn't begin when they were young and they have to begin later on in life, let me encourage you to begin now. Make the investments now and catch up and cultivate and develop your marriage for the long haul. It was in the year after our wedding that my parents suffered a very real career crisis that brought tremendous strain on their finances and to their marriage. In fact, my mom's sister and I both had to intervene to help my parents preserve their perspective, and remain committed to stay together. Those were some hard years. They were not very pretty. You know, I've since seen secular studies that indicate that even in the most difficult of marriages, if that couple will simply stick it out for five years, at least two-thirds of them will indicate that they are much happier. And that's not even taking into consideration Christian faith or counseling or any other 
help or support. Just the, the rugged determination to, to stick it out, to resist the temptation of the culture and the flesh that says, go separate ways. I can genuinely say now that my parents, after 14 years, have a better marriage. They are much happier. And in fact, this fall, they are taking my family and my sister's family on a Disney cruise out of a port in Florida in anticipation to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. I'm looking forward to that event. And I'm looking forward to an opportunity to commend my parents for remaining faithful, for sticking it out. And I look forward to maybe I'll even propose a toast at the right moment, a toast. And as I think about my parents, I would toast to laughter. If there's one quality I commend my parents the most for, it's the ability to laugh. My father has a wonderful sense of humor. That ability to turn a lighthearted slant on any tense situation. And my mother can laugh. Has a wonderful sense of humor and laughter. And laughter is communicating that ability to not take oneself so seriously. The world is too hard. And the powers of sin are too great to take ourselves too seriously. We need laughter. We need joy. And for us in Christ, that joy comes from the gospel of God's grace, where we rejoice in the victory of the one who has conquered sin and death, who has set us free to rejoice and to share with him the one who was faithful, who has finished well, who invites us to share his eternal happiness and eternal forever glory. Many young couples, when they sign up for marriage, know and understand very little of what they may be getting themselves in for. It is an awesome and glorious journey of challenge and struggle, of growing and learning, of being humbled repeatedly by one's own weaknesses and mistakes. Sometimes I wonder if the experience my wife and I had in those first two weeks of marriage, the crippling accident and disease, might that foreshadow what may be in store for us later on in our years together as we grow more feeble, as we are hobbling along, as we perhaps are called to take care of one another with ailing health and the weakness of the body. My desire is to be faithful, to finish well. And the gospel of Christ calls each one of us to present our beloved to his or her true husband, who will be pleased to finish the work that we have begun. May Christ be our joy and our strength for the journey as we prepare for the grand marriage to be revealed on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank you for calling us 
into the grand marriage of Christ and his church. We thank you for marriage in this life that is but momentary and yet glorious as it points us to the grand marriage of the one who was faithful to the end, the one who finished well on our behalf, the one who calls us to gather to enjoy his happiness for all eternity. We praise you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.